Hello and welcome to the November 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This month, CJ and I are going to be taking it from the top with the Supreme Court's latest attempt to cut through the complexity of our immigration laws before turning to a major High Court decision on trafficking. We're also going to look at the Home Office rollout of a new in-country application system and talk about what we know about that so far, which is, to be honest, not that much. Um, We're going to cover some upper tribunal case law on appeals, asylum and Article 3, and also the now infamous paragraph 3225, or the tax cases as they're known. If you are interested in um, claiming CPD, then sign up to Free Movement as a member at www.freemovement.org.uk where you can claim CPD for listening to this podcast and doing a simple quiz. Okay, so let's get started with the Supreme Court. Over to you, CJ. Yes, uh, in the Supreme Court, we had the case of Rupaya uh, and Secretary of State for the Home Department 2018 UKSC 58. Uh, And this, uh, I think, decided a couple of uh, definitions, definitively, I suppose. Um, So Lord Wilson saying that a precarious immigration status is anything short of indefinitely to remain. Um, And financial independence, another important term, means not having recourse to public funds. Um, is that the sort of most important elements of that, Colin? Those kind of terms have been sort of resolved. Yeah, that's that's the two key bits of the judgment, really. So, as you say, precarious immigration uh, status is basically anything short of indefinite leave to remain. And Obita, they go on to say that it could even be indefinite leave to remain or even citizenship if um, that's precarious by reason of previous deception or criminality or something like that. And this is important because it's it's to do with the statutory presumptions on human rights in section 117B of the Immigration, well, I was going to say the Immigration Act 2014, but it's actually the Nationality Immigration Asylum Act 2002 as amended and so on. And um, basically it makes it quite hard for you to succeed on a human rights case if you do have a precarious status. And the Supreme Court is basically telling us that's pretty much most migrants. Um, so, so bad news really on that front. Right, not that helpful. Um, what about financial independence? Why is that important? Well, this is um, worth highlighting, I think, as a rare example of Lord Justice Sales being more generous, actually, than the, the Supreme Court. Um, and Lord Justice Sales will shortly be Lord Sales in the Supreme Court. So that'd be an interesting, interesting dynamic in the future. Um, but yes, in, in, in this case, um, on financially independent, the Supreme Court basically says it's um, anything to do with uh, it's, it's to do with recourse to public funds so you don't have to show that you've got an independent income from employment or something like that you've just got to show that you've got enough to live on without having recourse to public funds which is a fairly sort of straightforward and, and simple definition so that's that's to be welcomed uh, and you also said in your piece um, that the court affirmed that human rights cases can succeed outside the statutory scheme, um, which gives judges some more flexibility, which sounds more positive than the um, precarious immigration status bit. Yeah, and, and to say this, they're drawing on the, the statutory scheme itself and looking at um, the, the terms of Section 117A of, of that part of the, the, the legislation and saying that basically that judges do have to have regard to this, but it's not necessarily definitive. However, they're also quite clear that it's pretty limited circumstances where somebody might be able to succeed despite sort of being caught by the statutory presumptions in effect. They, they do go on and say that on the facts of this case, which really is a very strong looking case, frankly, in Rupier, um, that they were slightly surprised by the outcome and that um, perhaps they hint that actually this might have been a suitable case to allow outside the statutory presumptions. 
Um, but there is a happy ending, at least for Ms. Ruppier, because she'd now been 20 years in the UK and um, in the build-up to the Supreme Court case, the Home Office had actually granted her leave. Admittedly, it's on the 10-year route to settlement, um, so it'll be some time before she qualifies for settlement. But um, good good news for her in the end. Absolutely. Um, good Um If that is all on the Supreme Court decision, we um, might just give a brief mention to a post we published in the sort of human rights uh, sphere, which was about exceptional circumstances under Appendix FM. Uh, Gabriella Batiga has written that. Um, it's been very popular uh, since published, I think, because it's such a popular topic uh, when you can plead exceptional circumstances uh, in Appendix FM, uh, family migration. Search exceptional circumstances, free movement, uh, you'll probably find it. Um, so we will then move on to trafficking, uh, because there was a major uh, victory, I suppose, by one of your chamber's colleagues, I think, Colin, um, possibly other counsel as well, uh, challenging the subsistence payment cut to uh, victims of trafficking. That had been £65 a week. Uh, this March 2018, it was cut to £37.75 a week, the same rate as asylum support, which is obviously a very drastic cut. And the High Court has found that that cut was unlawful. Yes, which is a decision very, very much to be welcomed. And, and it's bizarre, in some ways, the Home Office conduct in this case, where they're basically slashing the level of supports available to victims of trafficking. And the, the justification, although they're, they're, not, they're, they're shy of actually saying it out loud, so to speak, the justification was essentially that um, they didn't want trafficking victims to be getting any more than... Um, asylum claimants and presumably that's because the Home Office as sort of suspicious and cynical as they are didn't want there to be some sort of incentive to assert that you're a victim of trafficking thereby enabling you to claim more in the way of support um, I, they, they don't say that but I, I, that's the only possible justification I can I can think of for this really bizarre rather skinflint move you know, people trying to uh, abuse the system by claiming the princely sum of, of 65 quid a week yeah, yeah quite quite um, Cool. Yeah, that, so the case uh, citation I have omitted is um, K and another 2018 EWHC 2951 admin. Um, and I think we uh, hear that uh, people who have had their uh, rate cut can pursue sort of back payments from the Home Office. Uh, yes, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, it's about a £1,000 that would be owing from the date of the cut until the date of the judgments, um, and the Home Office would be on the hook for £1 million uh, and serve them right too. Uh, cool. Uh, if that is all uh, about that, we will go on to look at some procedural stuff. Um, we In November, the Home Office began rolling out a new visa application system for in-country applications, so people applying from the UK, uh, an outsourcing firm called Sopra Steria has sort of taken over the whole shebang. Um, there are kind of six major application centres and dozens of smaller ones. I, I think you have to pay extra, mind you, to access any of the local local ones rather than travel to a big city. Um, yes, one of the bizarre bits of this is that you, although in theory there are these free centres that you can use, there's only six of them, whereas there are like 50 of these kind of paid-for ones. Um, so clearly the Home Office is sort of trying to point people in the direction of paying more money by just sort of reducing the amount, the, the, the supply of, of the free application method. Yeah, and, and we've certainly heard that there have been uh, teething troubles, uh, to use a polite phrase, as it's been rolled out. Um, uh, we may sort of try to canvas opinion of practitioners about how it's going. 
uh, overall uh, as it sort of beds down certainly it doesn't seem to have been that well prepared in the early days but you know perhaps to some extent been uh, to be expected um one thing we should highlight um now is this issue of uh, whether people can travel while their application is pending um because you can retain your passport under the new system i, I think because you can scan your documents and send them off um, and I think originally in the piece we said on the basis of information from the Home Office that people could therefore travel um, out of the UK and come back while the decision is pending. Uh, we've never been told by the Home Office that's, that's not the case um, and you should not travel while um, an in-country application is being considered because uh, the application will be considered to be withdrawn. Um, so an important point there and conflicting information coming, uh, unfortunately, from the, the powers that be. Um, yeah, yeah, it's an it's an interesting one. I think I, I've actually lost track of where where we are on this one now. But in the 2002 Act, Section 104 certainly used to cover um, automatic withdrawal of an application if you travelled abroad. I can't remember what it says now. Actually, I have to confess since since reforms under the 2014 Act. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was the case that actually the Home Office hadn't realised that there is a statutory. Uh, effect that that you lose your application if you're travelling abroad, and that nobody actually put two and two together on that. Um, yeah, and the, the the sort of feedback we're hearing from people so far seems to be that it's it's like with the new train timetable stuff that there was disaster over the over the summer. You know, people like what they're trying to do with this, but they're, they're certainly not there yet, and it's it's in the short term causing all sorts of disruption. And I think it, it's worth giving a, a big shout out here to Ilpa, who have been doing a great job of collating problems that practitioners are having and trying to sort of engage in some constructive dialogue with the Home Office on, on how to make things better. So, um, yeah, if, if you're a member of ILPA, um, then then look out for that, that bit of the website. Or if you're not a member of ILPA, the Immigration Law Practitioners Association, then do join. Excellent. Free advertising for the good people at ILPA. Um, so next in the procedural theme... There was a case uh, in the Court of Appeal, Kusar and Secretary of State 2018 EWCA Civ 2462. Uh, and this was a Basnet case, which I believe is a long-running issue about invalidity of visa applications because the payment has fallen through in some way. Um, and the sort of key issue with uh, Basnet cases is that if the Home Office says the application is invalid, they have the onus of proof. Um, but only if the application was on its face valid. Um, this case uh, says that if you didn't tick the box on the application form saying that the Home Office uh, can take payment, can you benefit from this principle of evidence of proof or the policy on evidential flexibility? And the Court of Appeal basically says no. If you didn't tick the box saying that the Home Office could take payment for your visa application in the first place, you, you can't really benefit from any of this this Basnet case law um yeah was that yeah it's a, it's a good summary and i haven't got a lot to add on other than that hopefully a lot of these cases are now pretty much historic because um the law on invalid applications was ridiculously tight for a while and ridiculously restrictive it's the home office just sort of looking to trip people up and um make their lives impossible basically for for very small technicalities um, but the rules have been reformed and the Home Office now um, ought to be going back to people to try and um, make sure that their applications are valid and it sort of extends the period of, of leave in the meantime. So it's not as bad as it used to be and hopefully what happened to this family shouldn't be happening to families today. Um, but I don't know, I'd be interested to hear whether 
whether people are still having serious issues with these kind of invalidity issues. Yeah, I think the fact that a lot of applications will be online as well sort of means that this issue of literally missing the box on the written form won't, won't be as much of an issue. But yeah, if you yeah. do have an invalidity case, then uh, perhaps uh, useful to look at that one, Kusar, um, in the Court of Appeal. So there was also some case law on appeals, including a tribunal case uh <laughs> I'm pausing because this is another um, <laughs> rather you than me tri- tricky name uh, Oxozoglu um, EEA appeal new matter 2018 UK UT 385 um, apologies for uh, stumbling over the uh, the name of that case but uh, in essence the uh, legal point is that a new matter in section 85.6 of the National Immigration and Asylum Act 2002 um, includes an EEA ground of appeal. Uh, so I don't understand what that means, frankly, uh, but I should think it's quite important for immigration practitioners. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's not likely to arise very often in practice, to be honest. And this is a slightly funny, bizarre case where um, you've got somebody who's trying to rely on Surinder Singh, but it turns out they're an EU national anyway, um, and could simply, the, the family member could simply have applied for an ordinary residence card, but it only kind of came out during the litigation um, and so they try to kind of vary their case to say, oh, actually, it's not so much Surinder Singh as, as just a normal EU case. And um, the tribunal had said, oh, well, that's, that's actually a completely new case. You, you can't bring that into this current appeal. But, you know, there's nothing to stop you just making a, a very straightforward application for a normal residence card here. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, sli- it's a slightly odd one to, to sort of come up. But, um, but there you go. Excellent. There was another upper tribunal case, which, again, maybe of... Human interest. I don't know if the the legal point is is that uh, vital. Um, it's Safi and others. Permission to appeal decisions, twenty eighteen UKUT three eight eight, and this was uh, we're going all the way back to two thousand and two on this one when there were a group of Afghan asylum seekers who hijacked a plane um, to uh, bring them to the UK and litigation arising is still going on to this day. Um, they have just been granted in this case, general permission to appeal by the upper tribunal. Is there a sort of legal, general legal point in that Colin? Or? Uh, it's not, not really to be honest. And this one kind of reiterates what we've seen from, um, president McCloskey, the, the, the previous president of the tribunal saying that basically, unless there's an explicit, um, restriction on the grant of a, a permission to appeal, then it's a general grant of permission to appeal. And it's rather odd, frankly, that the Home Office tried to argue otherwise in this case, but that's frankly, um, that's probably a political decision, and the Home Office has tried to throw a spanner in the works at every possible opportunity of litigation in this, this long-running case, as I understand it. Um, so in, in some ways, it, it's not that surprising. But uh, in terms of general takeaways, it's, it's, not, yeah, it, it's, it's not a huge case, and it doesn't really establish anything new. Cool. We just try to bring you any reported upper tribunal uh, decisions, so uh, that is that. Turning to asylum and another upper tribunal case, uh, Abunar, paragraph 339C, country of return, 2018, UKUT 387. Uh, and the issue here was whether the risk of serious harm to the applicant has to exist in the country of origin or in the country of return. Um, it was an interesting case. I think it was a litigant in person uh, at the tribunal who spotted that the immigration rules talk about the risk of harm in the country of return, whereas the qualification directive from the European Union talks about country of origin, and that was significant in this case. 
and the Home Office conceded the point before the Up Tribunal. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we, we now, I, I presume we revert to what the qualification directive says because that overrides the immigration rules. Is that right? I think that's right. And, and Mr. Abunard did a great job here himself as a litigant in person. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a sort of narrow technical point, but an important one for somebody like him who had um, originally come from Syria, was a Syrian national, but had been living in another country in Egypt since he was six years old. Um, but it's a slightly odd turn to this where the Home Office basically concede and, and fall over backwards to, to, to concede at the, at the hearing. And yet it was their appeal. And you know, they'd been basically made this guy street homeless um, by lodging their appeal and, and then you know, not even putting up a fight when the actual hearing came around. So really poor form, frankly, by the Home Office in this one. But you know, a, a useful takeaway on the interpretation of EU law. Absolutely. Also in Asylum, there was a report by the Immigration Inspector David Boltz, uh, I suppose covering the issue of asylum accommodation where we know conditions aren't great. The Home Office, uh, he charges, have been too accepting of outsourcing companies, um, not bringing up standards uh, as they're supposed, contractually supposed to, really. Um, I suppose nothing necessarily directly relevant to uh, practitioners. Well, just, just to give um, just to give us a bit of a, a self big up. I don't think the young people say that these days, do they? So I should just just go away. But um, um, yeah, it, I was glad that you'd written this rather than me because David Bolt was at the Ilpa AGM this year in November, and um, he'd obviously read your piece because he specifically mentioned it. Um, so there you go. The um, chief inspector is a, a free movement reader. I think we've established. All the best, people are uh, excellent. Uh, so. Um, a shout out to us on that one we'll move on to a couple of cases about article 3 there was a another tribunal one which we can probably dispose of quickly um, HKK article 3 burden slash standard of proof 2018 UKU2386 and this confirmed I suppose that the burden of proof in article 3 appeals is with the appellant I don't think it was really in any doubt, but it was an attempt to argue that, and it failed. It was an ambitious argument, I think we say, by counsel, um, which didn't ultimately succeed. Worth a try. Uh, also, on Article 3, there was a case in the Court of Appeal, MM Malawi, 2018, EWCA Civ 2482. And a Chai Patel from JCWI wrote about this one for us. And he says that the Court of Appeal confirmed that there is a discrepancy between the domestic law and Article 3 medical cases and the European law as laid down in Papashvili. Um, ultimately, though, you know, again, this was Article 3 medical cases uh, trying to resist being sent back to the home country based on some serious medical um, problems. Uh, appeals rejected again. The, the Court of Appeal, I think conceding that it was arguable that Papishvili sort of extended the scope of Article 3 protection, but not really giving much ground uh, in terms of help to, to people trying to use that argument. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good summary. And, and essentially, none of this was a problem um, while the, the case of N and UK um, was sort of coexisting in the House of Lords and, and in Strasbourg. And the reasoning was different, but you couldn't really get a cigarette paper between the, the sort of effect in practice. But this Papishvili case later um, is significantly different to the N and UK uh, sort of House of Lords Supreme Court um, decision. So the, the, this gap does seem to have opened up. 
And the latest we've heard is that the Supreme Court has granted permission in a different case, related case, AM Zimbabwe. Um, so it looks like this is going back up to the Supreme Court and um, they'll, they'll clarify whether they intend to follow Papishvili or, or stick to their guns and the UK version of N and UK. Keep an eye out for that one and, and report it on the website, of course. It's going to be a big case when it happens. I mean, this, you know, these are really difficult cases involving people who are you know, basically going to die if they're removed, um, people who are getting dialysis and who aren't going to get dialysis when, they're, when they, they get sent back and, and therefore will die quite quickly and really quite unpleasantly. Yeah, I suppose the technical term we use is Article 3 medical, medical cases, but it doesn't really capture the full human, you know, hor- horrible human stories that, that these cases involve. Um, mm. Well, the Supreme Court will have to grapple with that. We'll move on to the final topic we have is these tax cases and refusals under paragraph 3225. I mean, this is actually become a kind of mainstream issue it's you know the guardian is full of stories about paragraph 3225 which is not and something... the financial times as well absolutely yeah it's really gotten some some play um essentially a lot of people who are on the old tier one general route are being refused settlement because of uh, their tax affairs the home office finding that there were a suspicious number of people who were uh, going back to HMRC to uh, change the amount of tax they said they owed because they needed to be paying a higher amount for visa purposes is kind of the accusation. Uh, an awful lot of I suppose, controversy about it, and the Home Office has, has done an, um, has published a report about it, including some guidance on how to handle those cases, but ultimately kind of sticking to its guns and saying, no, we, we think most of these cases are dodgy um, but there's a lot of litigation still ongoing and the tribunal has weighed in here with some quite detailed guidance I think uh, several different points about how to how decision makers should approach these cases which I suppose yeah. will need to be read with the, the Home Office guidance Yeah and, and if you're dealing with these cases then obviously this is extremely important um, there's not that many of them out there so this this doesn't um, you know, this isn't necessarily of general interest but it is of, of considerable interest to those who are affected and it's a lot of it's common sense when it comes down to it I mean there, there are some cases where um, you know there are relatively um, minor discrepancies between the income that was declared to the tax authorities and to the immigration authorities um, and it was a one-off or there's a good explanation for, for what went wrong and so on and then there are other cases where we're talking about tens of thousands of pounds of difference, and it, and and frankly speaking, you know there isn't really a very good explanation for for what happened, and and it rather does look as if people have been you know, declaring different income for different purposes, which leaves you thinking, well, you know, is one of those figures the right figure, or or is there some other figure that's actually the right figure? You know, you just have no idea what their actual income was. Um, so yeah, it's it's, it's useful guidance. It, it's it's mainly common sense when it comes down to it, um, and it, it's, it's certainly going to be important in those cases. Yeah, it's one of these issues where you, you know you, you see these refusals being described in terms of you know a new Windrush scandal, which seems quite uh, quite hyperbolic, frankly. Um, but... Yeah, I think some journalists get a little bit carried away with this because you know some of the behaviour um, on the face of it certainly does look um, problematic. Yeah, I think um, nevertheless, there's probably it looks like maybe the Home Office has kind of uh, adopted a sort of blanket refusal policy almost. And I, I saw um, 
Julian Norman described the approach as refuse them all and God will know his own. Um, so maybe that's where the guidance <laughs> yeah. will, yeah, the guidance might soften that um, a bit more nuanced decision making. Yeah, and, and there is another issue that sort of isn't really looked at here by the Home Office or the Tribunal, which is um, whether it's appropriate, even if the behaviour has been poor, even if the person has sort of misdeclared their income, is it appropriate years later that they and their families be removed from the UK on character grounds? And it, you know, there's no criminal offending here. They've put right the problem in, in the cases that I've heard about and seen. Should they really lose everything that they've built here on the basis of behaviour? sort of years previously it's got a sort of mayor of Casterbridge type type sort of dimension to it and um yeah I think I think there is an argument that even you know it's, it's kind of what what lawyers call in the alternative argument you know first of all plan a is there wasn't any dishonesty but plan b is that if there was then you know it, it, it's still appropriate for the person to be allowed to remain makes sense well we'll conclude on that uh, literary note the uh, next podcast we have will cover December and be out in January. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you, and uh, Merry Christmas to all our listeners.